The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. And this is where it gets a little abstract. <laughs> gets. So I was thinking, after we do the abstract part, then we can come back to how, how does this relate to day-to-day practice, okay? Okay, let's deal with the abstract part first. Okay. Um, what remains are the stages in letting go of the selfing activity. The first stage comes with stream entry, which is the point where you attain your first taste of the deathless. There is no experience of any of the aggregates in the deathless, no experience of space or time, but there is an awareness of the deathless. The question arises, well, what kind of consciousness is that? It's a consciousness outside of space and time, and the aggregates cover only what's in space and time. So when you come back from that, you realize, one, okay, there was no me in there, the aggregates were not in there, and yet there was still awareness. So the idea that you would hold on to the view that you are your body, or you are your feelings, or you are your consciousness, there's no basis for ever holding on to that, that view ever again. However, there still is a sense of I am. And let's look on passage 23. This old monk, Venerable Kamaka, leaning on his staff, went to the elder monks and on arrival, exchanged courteous greetings, greetings with him. After exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, he sat to one side. As he was sitting there, the elder monk said to him, Friend Kamaka, this I am of which you speak, what do you say I am? Do you say, I am form, or do you say, I am something other than form? Do you say, I am feeling, or something other than feeling? Do you say, I am perception, or something other than perception? The same with fabrications or consciousness. Do you say, I am consciousness, or I am something other than consciousness? This I am, of what you speak, what do you say I am? This is that conceit I am that we talked about earlier. Friends, it's not that I say I am form or any of these other things. With regard to these five clinging aggregates, the I am has not been overcome, although I do not assume that I am this. So there's a general sense of I am, but it doesn't focus on any particular thing where you would say, okay, this is really what I am. But the sense of of a you in there is still there. And he gives the example. It's just like the scent of a blue, red, or white lotus. If someone were to call it the scent of a petal, or the scent of the color, or the scent of the filament, would he be speaking correctly? No. Then how would he be describe it if you were describing it correctly? As the scent of the flower. That's how we would describe it if you were describing it correctly. In the same way, he says, I do not say that I am form or other than form, etc. With regard to these five clinging aggregates, I am has not been overcome, although I don't um, assume that I am this. Now, this is a pretty subtle distinction. But it's real. If you pin them down and say, well, you really, are, you, are you your body or something other than your body? And so, no, I can't define this sense of what I am. But there is this kind of inner sense of I am something, you know, I am there. Okay. He says, even though a noble disciple has abandoned the five lower fetters, five lower fetters, excuse me, he still has with regard to the five clinging aggregates a lingering res- residual I am conceit and I am desire and I am accession obsession. 
But at a later time, he keeps focusing on the phenomena of arising and passing away with regard to these five clinging aggregates, such as form, such as origin, such as disappearance, such as feeling, such as perception, such as fabrication, such as consciousness, such as origin, such as disappearance. As he keeps focusing on the arising and passing away of these five clinging aggregates, the lingering residual I am conceit, I am desire, I am obsession is fully obliterated. Just like a cloth, dirty and stained, its owners give it to the washerman, who scrubs it with salt earth or lye or cow dung. Imagine that. <laughs> and then rinses it in clear water. Now, even though the cloth is clean and spotless, it still has a lingering residual scent of salt earth or lye or cow dung. The washerman gives it to the owners. The owners put it away in a scent-infused wicker hamper, and its lingering residual scent of salt earth, lye, or cow dung is fully obliterated. So eventually, in the same way that your sense of I am is ultimately obliterated as you watch the aggregates arising and passing away. So at the end of this, not only were the elders, the 60 elder monks, fully awakened, but Kemika himself was fully awakened. So the first stage is you, you stop identifying yourself with anything, but there is a sense of I am that kind of hovers around. It's not specifically located on any one thing. Okay, now this is the next step. Okay. You've got this teaching here where the Buddha says, when you see with discernment all fabrications are inconstant, all fabrications are stressful, all phenomena are not self. Now, fabrications obviously here applies to anything that's conditioned, anything that has causes, anything that arises and passes away. Phenomena would recur to phenomena that are either conditioned or unconditioned phenomena. You grow disenchanted with stress, and this is a path to purity. Now, there's one problem here. Some people say, well, if phenomena covers conditioned and unconditioned, anything the phenomena that you would, could experience, then what's wrong with saying there is no self? Nothing you could possibly experience would be self. The problem with that is, is there, nirvana is discussed in two ways in the canon. One, nirvana is discussed as a dhamma, in which case it would be the unconditioned dhamma. And in other places, it's described as the ending of dhammas or when all dhammas are put away, even your experience of the unconditioned. And this is where we get to a technical point. Something that is a dhamma is an object of an object of awareness. There's, whenever there's an object of awareness, there's also a subject that goes along with that. That's the I am aware of that. And it is possible when you have your first tastes of the deathless is to still have the sense of the deathless is there, I am here. In which case, there's still a clinging to your sense of self. There's also clinging to the idea that this is something out there. That's what has to be obliterated and that's what um, you see that as not self as well. That's how you get past all phenomena. Because notice here it says this is not the conclusion, or this is not the insight that constitutes awakening. This is the path to awakening. You use the perception of not self regardless of what the objects of your awareness are, even if they seem to be unconditioned. So ultimately you can get to the point where you can break through to the ending of all conditions. Look on passage 25 again. This is that passage where we talked about the, the meditator who first gets into jhana, then applies the not-self perception to the attainment of jhana to get some sense of dispassion, and then inclines you. Then you incline your mind to the property of the deathlessness. 
This is peace. This is exquisite. The resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation. And uh, this is the last two paragraphs in that passage. Staying right there, he reaches the ending of the mental fermentations. Or if not, okay, this is this is what would hold the person back from total awakening. Then through this very dharma passion, this dharma delight, and through the total wasting away of the first five fetters. He is due to be reborn in the pure abodes, there to be totally unbound, never again to return from that world. In other words, you become a non-returner if you still view this experience of the unconditioned as a dhamma, as an object of your awareness. Now, you know, being a, being a non-returner is no small shakes. This would not be a bad thing if you could have that. But it's you know, you want to go on to the next step, and this is why the teaching all phenomena are not self, so that even your experience of the dhamma of nibbana as a phenomena or as a dhamma can be let go of. Then when you let go of that, that's when you break through to full awakening. So instead of seeing it as an object of the mind, there's no you get to the point where there is no I of which that is the object. There's no I subject experiencing the object of nibbana. Now, as Venerable Kamaka said, it's, overcoming this is done through looking at the arising and passing away of the aggregates. And this is the subject of passage 26. Okay, so, as sitting one side, Venerable, Venerable Kajayana, God has said to the Blessed One, Lord, right view, right view, it is said. To what extent is there right view? This is probably the most sophisticated and advanced definition of right view you find in the canon. Okay. By and large, Kachana, Kachana, this world is supported by or takes as its object a polarity. And it's important that you see that. This, to be support, supported by something, that's the image that they use in the canon. When the mind is focused on something, you see it has a support. It is supported by its object. And here the object is a polarity, that of existence or non-existence. But when sees the origination of the world, and here the word world means anything in the six senses. We're not talking about the world out there, we're talking the subjective world of your experience. Sight, sound, smells, taste, tactile sensations, just in and out of themselves. Okay. When you see these things arising and passing away all the time, so of course, first when you see the origination of these things, as they're arisen through causes, as it happens with right discernment, then the idea of non-existence with reference to them doesn't occur to you. Now, it's not saying that it, they exist or don't exist, it's just in that mental moment, the idea of non-existence doesn't occur to the mind, because you keep seeing things arising, arising, arising out of causes. Okay. When one sees the cessation of the world, and again, this is the cessation of different sensations at the senses. Can I say that again? Cessation of different sensations at the senses. Okay. As it actually is with the right discernment, Existence with reference to the world doesn't occur to you. Because while you think, see things passing away, passing away, passing away, just the concept of existence doesn't occur to you in the, at that moment in the mind. So what you're doing as you see arising and passing away is putting the mind in, this, into, in a position where the concepts of existence and non-existence don't occur. So you've erased the I and you're erasing the M of the I M. Okay? By and large, Kachana, this world is in bondage to attachments, clingings, and biases. But one such as this does not get involved with or cling to these attachments, clingings, fixations, awareness, biases, or obsessions, 
nor is he or she resolved on myself. This is taking out the I. You have no uncertainty or doubt that mere stress when arising is arising, stress when passing away is passing away. In this, your knowledge is independent of others. It exists to, the, it's to this extent that there is right view. So what you're doing is you're trying to put the mind through looking at simple arising and passing away in a position where the concepts of I and self don't occur to it and concepts of existence and non-existence don't occur to it. And that's what allows the mind to see simply th things simply in terms of stress arising and passing away. And that reminds you of your duties with regard to stress and arises and passes away. Remember what those duties are? We went over them, right? Comprehend stress, abandon its cause, realize its cessation, and develop the path to its cessation. Okay, when you get the mind in a state like this, this has several ramifications. One is there's no fear of non-existence if things are let go. Because one, the idea of non-existence isn't occurring to you. And for you see everything that you might hold on to simply as a risings and passings away of stress. In other words, it's not such a big deal if you let go. Why would you want to hold on to stress? Because that's all there is to it. An image that someone once used was it's like building a house out of frozen meat. As long as it's cold outside, you're okay. You know? <laughs> Then it starts getting warm, then you've got trouble. So if you realize, I mean, my gosh, this is just frozen meat. Or as, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, there's one of my absolute favorite far side cartoons. It's about the cow in the pasture with a startled look on its face. It's sitting surrounded by cows and it's looking startled like this and spitting out a mouthful of grass. It's, Wait a minute, we've been eating grass. This is grass we've been eating. <laughs> <laughs> So if you look at these things arising and passing away, say, wait a minute, this is just stress. Coming and going, coming and going, coming and going. Why do I hold on to this stuff? Wouldn't I be better off if I let go? And secondly, you don't have to get involved in any issues of existence or non-existence of the self, as these categories have no meaning in that mindset. If you've been through this experience where ideas of existence and non-existence don't have any meaning, why would you get worked up about the existence or non-existence of a self? It's just not, at that point, doesn't really make, you know, doesn't, is not an issue. And finally, this allows you to focus strictly on the duties appropriate to the Four Noble Truths, which in this case ultimately includes letting go of the path as well. Because once you've got, once the path has done its duty, then the next thing to do is let go of that too. In fact, there's a passage in uh, John Munn's teaching. It talks about how the practice reaches a point where all Four Noble Truths become one and the same thing. What he means here is that they all carry the same duty. Whatever, whether it's stress or the rising of stress or the path, you let it go, let it go, let it go. And that's how you get awakening. Once you've gained awakening, passage 27. This is a Brahmin named Upasiwa who comes to see the Buddha and he says, One who has reached the end, does he not exist or is he for eternity free from disease? Dis-ease. In other words, is it total wipeout or you just go through an eternity of total bliss? Please, Sage, declare this to me as this phenomenon, Dhamma, has been known by you. And the Buddha says, one who has reached the end has no criterion or measure by which anyone would say that. He, the person who has reached the end would say that. Anybody who could read the person's mind wouldn't say that. For that person, it doesn't exist. 
when all phenomena are done away with. And this is his definition of nirvana, is doing, doing away with all phenomena, even viewing the, the unconditioned as a phenomenon. When all phenomena are done away with, all means of speaking are done away with as well. In other words, saying no self is, is a matter of speaking, it doesn't apply. Saying there is a self is a matter of speaking, that doesn't apply. So you're running up here, up against the limits of language. And then this is discussed further. Okay, in passage 10, very last paragraph. This is on page 5. talks about the monk who has become awakened by not clinging to anything in the world. Now look at that last paragraph. If anyone were to say with regard to a monk whose mind is thus released that the Tathagata, and here Tathagata means anyone awakened, exists after death is his view, that would be mistaken. That the Tathagata does not exist after death, that the Tathagata both exists and does not exist after death, or that the Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist after death is his view, that would be mistaken. In other words, why? Having directly known the extent of designation. In other words, you see how far words can go, and you realize that words can't go to this point. And the extent of the objects of designation, the extent of expression, and the extent of the objects of expression, the extent of description, and the extent of the objects of description, the extent of discernment, and the extent of the objects of discernment. Nirvana lies even beyond discernment, beyond banya, okay? The, the extent to which the cycle revolves. Having directly known that, the monk is released. In other words, you come to the limit of karma, which would, I mean, even speaking, thinking is a kind of karma, right? Karma can't go, go reach into the realm beyond karma. Having reached that limit and having gone, re, been released from that limit, you're released. And the view that having directly known that the monk released does not see, does not know, would be mistaken. In other words, his reason for not taking a stand on this is not because he doesn't know, but he just sees that this is how far language can go. Can't go any further than that. One other, two other passages you might want to note, Andrea, are Sutta Nibbata 4.6. That's the first view as well. And Sutta Nibbata 4.10. Both of these talk about the Arahant who has transcended this passion, which is said to be the highest Nibbana, highest Dhamma, excuse me, the highest phenomena. So when you have full awakening, you actually go beyond phenomena of any kind, the Dhammas of any kind. Now, in the forest tradition, they talk about this in a similar way, both in the teachings of Ajahn Mahabhava and in the teachings of Ajahn Lee. They say that in awakening, there is neither sense of self nor of not-self. Neither of these concepts apply because they're strategies. We've talked about this earlier. You have a self-strategy and you have a not-self strategy. When you've reached the highest happiness, you have no more need of these strategies, and so you let them go. Or as John Sawat once said in one of his Dhamma talks, he said, when there's the experience of deathless happiness, who cares what or who's experiencing? This, the experience is sufficient in and of itself. These other questions just don't matter to you. Okay. So we look at passage 28. Here is the monk Anurata. He was asked by some sectarians, um, and they talk about the Tathagata, here they're talking about the Buddha or anyone awakened. How would you describe him? Would you, after death, would you describe him as existing, not existing, both, or neither? He says, well, you can't exist describe him in any of those ways, but you can describe him in another way. And they said, you are a fool. We've never heard any Buddhist monk talk about it that way. So he goes back to see the Buddha. And so the Buddha gives him this questionnaire. He says, okay, what do you think? Do you regard form as the Tathagata? No. Feeling? No. Perception? No. Fabrications? Consciousness? No. 
What do you think? Do you regard the Tathagata as being in form elsewhere than form? And the same with the rest of the aggregates. In feeling elsewhere than feeling? In consciousness or elsewhere than consciousness? No. What do you think? Do you regard the Tathagata as form, feeling, perception, fabrications, consciousness? The whole lump? No. Do you regard the Tathagata as that which is without any of these things? No. And so, as, and so on our turn, we can't even pin down, in other words, you can't even define what the Tathagata is as a truth or reality even in the present life. Can you talk about them after, after death? In other words, because once someone is no longer clinging to the aggregates, they're no longer defined. You define yourself by clinging to the aggregates. Once you don't cling, then you are no longer defined. Nobody else can define you either. So you're on beyond definition. And then finally, passage 29. And the Buddha, this is after Wacha has asked the Buddha, where do you go? Where do you reappear after you've been awakened? And the Buddha gives the analogy of the fire. He says, when the fire goes out, we say it goes out, right? Yes. Okay, when it goes out, does it go east? Does it go west? Does it go north? Does it go south? And he said, no, that doesn't apply. And then the Buddha says, in the same way, any form by which one describing the Tathagata would describe him, that the Tathagata has abandoned, its root destroyed, made like a palmyra stump, deprived of the conditions of existence, not determined for future arising. Freed from the classification of form, the Tathagata is deep, boundless, hard to fathom, like the sea. Reappears, does not appear, both does and does not reappear, and neither reappears nor does not reappear, doesn't apply. Any feeling, any perception, any consciousness by which one describing the Tathagata would describe him, that the Tathagata has abandoned. Freed from the classification of consciousness, the Tathagata is deep, boundless, hard to fathom, like the sea. So what happens here is that you let go in stages. First you let go of your identification with the aggregates, or around the aggregates, and then you turn on that sense of I am. And to do that, you put the mind in a state where concepts of existence and non-existence are irrelevant, where the idea of an I or a not-I is irrelevant. You simply see things arising and passing away as a form of stress. That creates a sense of dispassion so that it doesn't seem so radically a loss that you're going to let go. And so you start letting go. So you don't feel threatened by the letting go. And you get ultimately to the point where everything gets let go. All four of the noble truths get let go, and then the mind goes beyond phenomena. Where you don't even have a subject or object around you know, the, the, the deathless. It's just, there's just the awareness of the deathless without subject or object division. Sounds like non-duality, but you don't get there by cloning non-duality. You get there by putting the mind through this process of just watching things arise and pass away until you feel that you have no reason to want to hold on to them anymore. And from that point on, the description of how you describe that person, you can't describe them at all because description is a kind of karma. That person has gone beyond karma. Description depends on definition. That person has gone beyond definition. So that's where the path leads. As I said, it was going to be kind of abstract, but... Are there any questions on that before we come back to day-to-day -day practice? What does it mean when you say they go beyond definition? You define yourself by what you cling to. 
And if there's no clinging, then you can't be defined. That sounds like a, you know, a verbal trick, but it's not. You define your sense of who you are around the things that you hold on to. And for most of us, our sense, if we let go, there would be nothing, right? But the Buddha says it's the opposite of nothing. But he doesn't want to talk too much more about it, because then you're going to form a conception around it that you're going to hold on to. There's a question over here. Tony? I, I have to say I'm confused about this description of the deathless, as, if I'm getting this right, as something that is perceived outside of the sixth sense basis. Mm -hmm. There are two references to it in the canon. As consciousness without surface? As consciousness without... Without surface. Or without feature. So there's consciousness or awareness with not an object of awareness. Right. And there's one point in Majjhima 49 where the Buddha says you don't, you, don't, you don't realize this or you don't know this through the six senses. Awareness of the deathless can arise and pass, but the deathless does not arise, arise and pass. pass. Yeah, and if your awareness of it has arisen in the pa and passed, you're still stuck in your clinging to the idea of the deathless, which is better than not having an experience of it at all. But still, it's it's a limiting factor. So, aside from the sense bases, there's something that perceives. Well, the Buddha says, if you get into that, then you start going beyond the realm of language. I mean, he, he mentions this only twice in the canon. In both cases, it's in passages where he's trying to show the, the passage is trying to show the superiority of the Buddha over the Brahmas, that he knows more than they do. Like that, the case of that hypocritical Brahma we, I talked about earlier, who said, you know, I don't know where the physical universe ends. And the Buddha comes back to him and he says, no, it's in this consciousness, consciousness without feature, that's where the physical universe ends. It, what, what makes me uneasy is that, that the concept the concept of the deathless just echoes too much for me of some kind of God or Brahman mm -hmm. with a little B. Okay. Well, the thing is, it's not it's not functioning as the as the source of the universe. Mm -hmm. And two, it's something that the only way you can get there is by dropping all your attachments. You can't get there by holding on to the concept of the deathless. You hold on. You drop all your concepts. And what appears is outside of the sense bases. Right. Andrea. Andrea. I'll follow on that question. Um, so it sounds like, and, and I also got the sense in reading um, The Shape of Suffering, that you're describing two different kinds of consciousness. That's what you're talking about, two different kinds of consciousness. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
And the, um, you say that there's only the two places where the Buddha referred to this different kind of consciousness mm-hmm. in the suttas. Why didn't he use a different word? I mean, you know, it, 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 seems, it seems odd to me that he would, you know, not clarify that for us. <laughs> there's an awful lot that he doesn't clarify for us. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I, um, I'm going to hold that with, uh, I'll hold that teaching lightly until I get there myself. <laughs> I mean, by holding on to it, it's not going to get you. What the, main, the main function of that teaching is to remind you this is not a wipeout. You're letting go of all phenomena, you're letting go of all, all the senses, all the other things. I mean, the, one fear you might have is, what am I, committing you know, spiritual suicide? And this is there just to remind you, it's not spiritual suicide. It is the highest happiness. So we can look at that as a skillful means, in a sense. It's a skillful means. It's an incentive. Question here. There's a microphone over here. Yeah, it's green. This reminds me, Asante Caro gave a weekend a couple of weeks uh, uh, in depth on Kula Sunyata Sutta 121. Kula Sunyata. And this strikes me as similar, although you have, that it's all contained in the sutta. Mm-hmm. Going through the, 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 getting to know the process of devoiding this by going to this and then devoiding that by going to that, and then at a certain point you abstract the process and you become that. Only you fabricated this out of many different quotes mm-hmm. and created a path. It strikes me as similar. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's how sunyata? Could you put that word into the context? Okay, the sunyata, which would be the emptiness. That's a particular way of looking at your concentration practice to see okay, where is there still stress, or in the case of that word, they use the word disturbance, in that state of concentration. And then seeing, okay, what's causing the... Uh, let's say, say you go from state A to state B, okay, you see, okay, what disturbance have I lost, or what disturbance has fallen away? What disturbance remains? Translate this in terms of the Four Noble Truths, what stress remains? What stress have I been able to get past? And you just go to, in that case, you go to more and more refined state, you know, perceptions. Until you finally abandon perception. That's the final disturbance. And they're still there, though. The six, the six bases are still there. Okay, as long as, you're, as long as you're, you're functioning as, as a living person, the six sense bases are all there. But there still is also this knowledge on the other side, which is not the six sense bases. But you're not going to get there by thinking about it. It's like driving to the mountain on the on the horizon. And if you're focusing on the mountain all the time, you you get off the road. But it's good to know there is a mountain out there. Over here. When you use the uh, word stress, do you mean suffering or craving? Dukkha, suffering. Suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, the cause of suffering is craving, mm-hmm. and we're talking a lot about attachment due to concepts, or, uh, um, identity due to concepts, mm-hmm. clinging. Uh, why don't we talk more about identity beginning at craving? Okay, well, the, the reason we, ad- we have those concepts that we identify with, it's not just abstract concepts. They're part of our strategy to find, try to find happiness. We're craving a kind of happiness. We feel that we need to hold on to these things in order to get the happiness we want. And after a while, our craving then gets distracted over to these things as well. 
the things that we're identifying with. But the underlying craving is, okay, what kind of happiness do I get out of the strategy of holding on and creating this sense of self? And the, as we've been talking in the course of the day, you want to refine that sense of self so it actually becomes skillful and actually is more and more conducive to get you on the path. And then finally, when you don't need it anymore, then you take it apart in this way. Take apart you know, any basis for having an I or a not I and having any basis for looking at things in terms of existing and non-existing. That undercuts that conceptual basis. We can kind of conceptualize uh, our concepts of self at clinging. Mm -hmm. Do you have a way of, of helping us understand our concept of self at craving? Okay, it's based around a particular craving for a particular happiness, right? And then you, as a result of that, in order to can that, gain that happiness, you think about two things. Yourself as the producer of the happiness, what you can do to gain the happiness, and yourself as the consumer of that happiness. Once the happiness comes, you're going to be there to consume it. And so you create a, those two senses of self in order to function around this. And then if you start seeing that the things that you crave are not worth it, that's one of the first ways of undercutting that, those various senses of self. Because you hold on to them as long as you see okay, you know, craving for this um, glass of water. This is a really worthwhile craving. And any sense of self that I have that helps me get that glass of water, that's a worthwhile sense of self. But then if you take it and you realize that's poison, and it's okay, any sense of self that wants that poison, you say, oh my gosh, I can't identify with that anymore. That's stupid. So that, that's one way of looking at it, looking at the things that you crave and realize, okay, this is not worth it. I built this whole construct around this, you know, this house of frozen meat. <laughs> that's how you'd get at it. Okay, the last issue, of course, is how is this relevant to your day-to-day -day life? Okay, and here we look at the whole issue of how this business of being the consumer and the producer. You look at yourself and say, okay, my sense of self, how many senses of self do I have in the course of a day? That might be a good journal project. <laughs> how many different ways you identify yourself and try to look at, okay, what is the craving, what is the desire for happiness around which that sense of self is centered, around which is oriented. And then you can look at this sense of self. What are the advantages of holding on to that sense of self and what are the drawbacks? What do I have to pay in order to have that sense of self? Another way you can analyze it in terms of, okay, which of the different aggregates do I use as a focal point for my sense, different senses of self? Which parts of the day are you identifying with your body? Which part of the day are you identifying with your feelings? or thought fabrications or consciousness. Just notice that. How does your sense of self change in the course of a day? And you'll see it's kind of like an amoeba. It spreads out here a little bit, then spreads out there a little bit, keeps changing its shape. Okay, once you see that process, okay, that helps you to start looking at the various senses of selves that you have and look at their drawbacks and look at their advantages because they are a form of karma. This is something you're doing, you're choosing. The problem is for many of us, the choices are subconscious. 
And so we end up identifying with all kinds of unskillful things. And what the Buddha is simply asking you to do in the beginning is to get more conscious of the process. In terms of the consumer, okay, exactly how much are you really pleasure are you really gaining from this particular type of self? In terms of the producer, how much control do you really have over the things that you're identifying with as your means to happiness? And this then can become a useful analysis in terms of, you know, say you say you have you know, my, my marriage, my partnership, how much do you really control that? To what extent can you expect for true happiness out of that? And this is not necessarily advocating that you stop the partnership or stop the marriage, but oftentimes you'll find that if you place too many expectations on hap for happiness on the relationship, you weigh it down, make it impossible. Because the Buddha definitely does want you to see okay, exactly to what extent do I have control over the means of happiness in my day-to-day -day life. And if I'm looking for happiness in areas where I don't have a good measure of control, I've got to look someplace else. Of course, the primary place you start looking is in terms of your own mind. And you say, oh my gosh, my mind is a mess. But the Buddha says the mind can be trained, at least to the extent where you can put it in a position where it opens the door to the deathless. But the most important insight that comes out of this is your sense of self is an activity. And if you start feeling threatened, he says something is, you know, I, I, feel I feel threatened, I feel anxious, I feel whatever emotion you feel, remind yourself there are conscious choices that went into that feeling. The feeling is not just a given, it's a result of choices you've made. It is a type of karma. And if your sense of self is feeling very uncomfortable or very unskillful, you can change. You don't have to keep identifying with the same things over and over and over again. Your identity is not stuck. So that's the advantage of this. If it's not stuck, then the question is, how can I create a sense of self that's skillful? And the qualities you're looking for are self-reliance, responsibility, a sense of self-confidence, self-esteem, and competence in the sense of you, you have a sense of what your abilities are and you can build on them. That's the kind of self you want to work on. Notice the Buddha doesn't give a definition of what that self is, but these are qualities that are useful as activities on the path. Qualities that are useful to bring to the practice. Anything else? Self-reliance? <laughs> I don't have them on the list. Okay, there's self-reliance, competence, self-esteem. Self-esteem, responsibility, self-reliance, and what was that? Confidence. Competence. Your sense of what, where your abilities lie. The idea, okay, I can handle this. And given the different issues that may came, come up. Push the button. Okay. 
I'll probably stick my foot in my mouth over this, but you said something just a minute ago about if something is making me feel threatened or uncomfortable, I guess, in regards to striving for happiness, maybe that's what you're saying. I, I have free will there. I have choices to make. So what... How do I know that I'm not going to just avoid suffering? Okay, if you and find then, that by avoiding, avoiding suffering X, you run into suffering Y, you say... <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was going to put yeah. my foot in my mouth. No, but no, that's, that's it, a perfectly legitimate question. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. speaking in regards to everyday life, decisions, places we go, goals, mm-hmm. all these things, mm-hmm. partners we need to work with or mm-hmm. strive to work with. I don't want to just have aversion to discomfort, right? Right. Can you speak to that? What I meant more was when your sense of self feels threatened in the sense of, okay, the things my happiness are based on are feeling threatened right now. You have two choices. One is to try to protect them more. The other choice is to say, well, maybe I don't need to identify with those things. And that's a choice that you have to make for yourself as you read the circumstances. But you've also got this whole issue of, I've got, you know, do you say, I've got all these different intentions and I'm not really sure about some of them, whether they're skillful or not? Okay, the first lesson is you know they're not skillful, don't act on them. And that right there is a big practice. Because there are a lot of things that we know are unskillful, but we, we feel just really compelled to act on them. And I say, I don't care, I'm just going to do what I want to do right now. That's the first thing you've got to act on. Because when you make a mistake based on, on an, an intention you know is unskillful, that's a really hard one to live with. If it was an intention that you didn't know was unskillful and you found out it was a mistake, it's a lot easier to live with that kind of mistake. Because you say, you know, as far as I knew, it was okay. But when you know clearly that it's not skillful, you don't act. And you do whatever you can to keep yourself from feeling compelled to act on it. Then you start getting with the, with the more difficult, you know, sort of the, the gray area ones. And this is why the Buddha was so clear when he was talking with Rahula, is one, keep looking at your mistakes. If you make a mistake, learn to admit it. Talk it over with someone else. And this is the talking over with someone else who's on the path helps give you some perspective. So we're not doing this all alone. It's, it's assumed that there are people who are helping you. Yeah that they can see your blind spots. But the first first line of attack is, okay, if I know that I've got this impulse which is going to be harmful either to me or to, my, or to the people around me, can't act on it, period. And then you find yourself dealing with how to talk yourself out of doing that kind of thing. That's, that, the Buddha said, is the second measure of wisdom. So there are some basic measurements like is this harmful? Is right. this skillful that yeah. we can ask? You can ask, And yeah. then go from there. Right. That's why the, the passage to Rahula, which I've forgotten the number here. Passage 17. Take that home and look at it. Read it carefully. It's where the Buddha is talking to his son, Rahula. It says, before you act, while you're acting, after you've acted, look at the results of your actions. And this is essentially lessons in how to overcome delusion. 
Because sometimes you could, the only way you're going to know is by trying something out and then seeing what happens as a result. Yes. You were you were talking a little bit earlier about um, looking at things as our sources of happiness and realizing that they can't make us happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So once you and, and I, I guess you, we were talking earlier about how that kind of drives us to act, our mm-hmm. our longing for happiness. So once you start undercutting that, like, how do you avoid? Like, how do you keep acting in the world? How do you avoid nihilism? Okay, it's because you start looking inside for your happiness. And you realize that you're not going to find happiness inside if you go around abandoning all of your responsibilities. Because that starts getting you into denial. So you figure out, okay, which responsibilities can I let go of? Which responsibilities do I really have you know, a commitment that I have to see through? And in the meantime, as your source of happiness, you start looking more and more and more inwardly to develop the qualities of mind that you really can depend on. And that way you find that okay, even if the relationship is not going to be your ultimate source of happiness, you know, if the person you have a relationship with, the relationship is actually helping you along in the path, that's perfectly fine. It's the really unskillful ones that are pulling you back. That's those the ones you have to rethink. Okay, well, thank you for your attention. I hope, hope this has been helpful. <laughs>